Please be seated. I wonder if you're familiar with what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a sociological principle that says the less we know about something, the more we think we know all that we need to know about it. And the more we learn about something, we realize, we begin to realize how little we actually know about it. I just learned about this principle last week, but I think I'm already an expert on it. Now, why am I telling you this? Because we're in a stretch of the book of Hebrews. We're in a verse-by-verse exposition of Hebrews, and we're in a stretch where week after week, the author is going to talk to us about Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And as you're, you're starting to learn about Jesus' role as the great high priest, you know, if you hear about it one week, it might think, that, that's interesting. Uh, the second week, you know, you might start thinking, oh, I, I already know about this. And by the third week, you might be apt to tune out uh, because you might think, I know all there is to know about Jesus as my great high priest. I've heard all of this before. Well, Jesus Christ as our great high priest is one of the most amazing and wonderful truths in all of existence. And so in one or two or three or a thousand sermons, I promise you, we will not exhaust how wonderful this reality is that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And so as you study this concept more and more, I think you'll realize that it's more profound than you ever imagined And more importantly, that Jesus is more wonderful than you ever imagined. I want to pray that we don't uh, become numb to this, but rather that we would have hearts hungry to learn about Jesus as our great high priest. So let's go before our God together. Lord, your word is wonderful in every way. It gives us what we need for life and for godliness. It corrects us and reproves us and trains us. But Lord, we confess that sometimes we come to it with with proud hearts or, or apathetic hearts, not willing to be taught, not ready to learn uh, more and more of the glory of Christ. And so we, we may hear this terminology of Christ as our high priest and think that we know all that there is to know about it, but God, in reality, we won't exhaust the riches of the priesthood of Christ even in eternity. So help us to be attentive. Give us humble hearts that are ready to say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Well, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And he says also in another place, 
You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. If you were to find yourself speaking to a friend, perhaps one who is from a Catholic or Episcopal background, there's a chance they might say something like this. Oh, you go to First Scots? Uh, who's your priest? And you might think to yourself, priest? We don't have a priest. Why don't we have a priest? I need to ask Alex this Sunday, why don't we have a priest? And so you might say to him, we don't have a priest you think of a priest with their vestments and all the, 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 the pomp and circumstance of the priesthood, and then you think about us. You have two very ordinary, plain pastors. And so you could say to them, we don't have a priest. We just have pastors, and that statement wouldn't be entirely true. And not that we're not ordinary pastors. It doesn't get a whole lot more ordinary than Pastor Walton or me. But it would be untrue if you said to your friend, we don't have a priest. You should say, we have a priest, and he is wonderful. And your friend might say, one priest for the whole congregation? That must be kind of hard to get to him. And you could say, Oh, absolutely not. He is always available, and I can tell him anything. I can go to him any time, day or night. I can go to him when I've messed up. I can go to him when I'm lonely. I can go to him when my world is falling apart. And he's always available to me, and he's always patient with me. Now, you know by now, because we've been studying Hebrews, that we're not talking about Pastor Walton or me, but about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the great high priest of First Scots. And so you could look at them and say, we have the greatest priest ever. And they might not understand, and they might say, no, I have the greatest priest ever. And they might tell you about their priest, and that would be a matter of their opinion. But the fact that Jesus is the greatest priest ever is that. It's a fact that's what Hebrews is arguing, that Jesus is the great high priest. He, he's the greatest of all the priests. And in particular, there's three ways that this passage is communicating that Jesus is the greatest high priest there is or ever could be. First, it, it tells us about his patience. And second, his permanence. And then third, his perfection. And so that's what we're going to talk about, the patience of Christ, the permanence of Christ, and the perfection of Christ. So let's think first about Jesus' patience towards us, and look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for men. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now for that to make sense, we need to understand the role of the Old Testament priest. He was to represent the people before God. He was their representative. And so all the people of Israel had a a mediator, a representative in the great high priest. And his main duty in mediating for them was to offer sacrifices. I don't want to assume that we know and understand too much about those Old Testament sacrifices. We probably know that they happened and they were frequent and there were lots of details about them, but there's a couple of things that I think are helpful to understand about the Old Testament sacrifices. First, uh, we need to understand from them that they communicate sin is serious. In fact, sin is so serious that somebody or something has to die because of it. And so every time the animal was laid on the altar, it wasn't because the people were good. It was because the people had sinned. And so it communicates that sin is serious. Second, it communicates that forgiveness is possible, but it's costly. There's no easy, cheap forgiveness before God. Uh, And then third, it communicates that for sins to be taken away, blood had to be shed. You know, it was a visible picture thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of times through the years in which people saw living pictures of exactly what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what that sacrifice communicated. The wages of sin is death, but it also told us forgiveness is possible, but some blood has to be shed for forgiveness to happen. You know, we need to realize that sin is serious. It's often common in our world today to think that the greatest need we have is just to forgive ourselves. Have you ever heard somebody say that? You just need to learn to forgive yourself. Sometimes people even say, well, I know God has forgiven me, but I really, I, I just can't forgive myself. That's kind of a crazy idea to think that the chief thing you need in life is to forgive yourself. The chief thing you and I need, and this is what the whole Old Testament communicates, the chief thing we need is God's forgiveness. But oftentimes, even if we understand that, that we can't just forgive ourselves, we think, well, I think that if if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds in the end, then surely God will forgive me. And so you put your bad deeds over here and, and maybe, maybe your bad deeds are a little heavy and so you have to do more good deeds to try to balance the scale. Well, here's the problem. No matter how many good deeds you put on one side, they can't erase sin. They can't take away the bad deeds. And it is our sin that separates us from a holy God. And so we can't make up for our sin. We need to be forgiven for our sin. Or another way of saying it is we can't be our own high priest. You know, that's what workspace religion teaches. You can be your own high priest. You can make yourself presentable before God. You can defend yourself and make the case for why God should let you into heaven. We need someone else to help us with that, don't we? Because we can't make our case for why God should let us in. And that's why God gave the position of the high priest, But, you know, if you think about it, 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 there was a lot of honor involved in being a high priest, certainly, but it was also an incredibly frustrating job. 
See, the priest's work was endless. You'd go to the priest and he'd make sacrifice for your sin. But you know what? Was that the last time you were going to sin? No, no, no. You're going to have to come back again. What'd you do this time, Bob? Every time you saw somebody, they're just coming to tell you more about what they've done. And you can imagine that week after week of bringing sacrifice after sacrifice and the work never being done, that could get very frustrating for the high priest. And so that's why in verse 2, we see one of the, the, the primary qualifications of the high priest was patience, that he could deal gently with the people's sins. And it says there in verse 2, the reason he could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward is because he himself is beset with weakness. So here's how it ought to happen. As, as, as person after person comes to you again and again, needing you to make a sacrifice for their sins, and you start to get frustrated, you should remember, but I'm just like you. In fact, the high priest had to make a sacrifice for his own sins before he could sacrifice for the sins of the people. You know, that's important for us to remember, by the way, because I know, I, I remember being under pastors and thinking, you know, my pastor, he never could imagine, he never could relate to what I'm going through. I want you to know that's not true. Or if you think my pastor's too busy for me, that's not true. We understand what it's like to be you because we are like you. And so I want to encourage you just to follow this pattern of ministry that coming to those who are beset with the same weaknesses, come to Pastor Walton and to me and to your elders, to your shepherding elders, to uh, with struggles, with weaknesses, with, with your needs, because we're just like you. Now, here's what you need to see, though. Hebrews is explaining how a high priest was supposed to be. He should have been gentle. He should have been patient. But the readers knew, and you know, that's not always how it is. The high priest at times was actually a very corrupt office. You had people like Hophni and Phinehas. Or in Jesus' day, Annas and Caiaphas, the two that really were responsible for condemning Jesus, turning him over to Rome. And it highlights for us a, a problem that many of us face. There's a paradox of being sinners. As sinners, we ought to be incredibly patient with each other because anything you've done, I've probably done the same. We ought to be incredibly patient. But are we? Not always because of our sin. Because of our sin, we're often so self-concerned that we can grow incredibly impatient with each other. We can grow impatient with the sins of one another, not always because the sin was wrong, but because maybe it frustrates us. Just think of this as those of you that are parents. Your child does something that your child should not have done, and you respond with discipline, which you should do. But have you ever disciplined your child not because you want to raise them up in the nurture and admission of Christ, but rather because what they were doing just frustrated you to no end? I've done it twice this week. Or spouses. A husband may say, uh, he may be critical of his wife and the way she does something, and I see this a lot, and he knows he's got this duty from God to, to help sanctify her. 
But oftentimes the corrections are not because of his deep love for his wife, but because of how what she does frustrates him or annoys him. That's what sin does. We should bear with each other with incredible patience. But because of our sin, we're often incredibly impatient. Do you know what the point that this is making is? We need a better high priest, one who is really patient with us. Those Old Testament priests could grow very impatient. You need a high priest who knows what it is to be like you, who knows what it is to be weak, but he doesn't have that sin problem. He doesn't have that problem of self-righteousness and impatience that earthly high priests have. You need a patient, better high priest. That word here for deal gently, it's a Greek word. It's a combination of two words, metriopathane, measured feelings. He's not condemning on the one hand, angry and impatient on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's gentle and kind. Isn't that a picture of what the Lord Jesus would be? He never condones sin. He never says, go on, it's no big deal. He never winks at sin. He can't. It's an attack upon his character, and yet he deals gently with sinners, doesn't he? He is so kind to us when we sin against him. When his children come to him and we bring the baggage and burden and the offense and the stink of our sins to him, he is so kind and he deals gently even with the chief of sinners. You know, the Apostle Paul called himself that, but if if you and I have any real spiritual sensitivity about us, we could just as easily say, Paul, you don't get that title. I've, I've earned that title. I'm the chief of sinners. But Jesus is the king of patience. He's the one who Paul would say in Romans was both just and the justifier of God's elect. He hates sin. But he loves his people so thoroughly and so tenderly that when we come to him in faith and repentance, he deals gently with us. Regardless of what we've done in the past, and there is a a tendency among us to think, you know, I understand that he could love some people, but what about what I've done? Could he really love someone like, like me? Yes, absolutely. He never refuses forgiveness from those who seek it, and he always deals gently with us when we come to him. Listen to John Owen. Speaking of Jesus, he says he is able with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, to bear with the infirmities, sins, and provocations of his people, even like a nurse bears with the weakness of a poor infant. Is there anything in your life that you are scared if others were to find out, find out about it, they would go running. It may be a secret sin from your past, a past lifetime. It may be a secret sin that you are struggling with right now and you look around this room and you think, if these people found out about what I've done, they would hit the road running. You know, we can never answer how each other will respond. We should respond with much charity and grace, but we can never answer how others will respond. But beloved Jesus, as we confess our sins, which he already knows about, 
he doesn't step back with self-righteous indignation. He doesn't run away. He actually runs towards us with his grace. Your sins cannot scare off Jesus. They actually, as you confess and repent of those, it draws him nearer to your heart and draws you nearer to his heart. If we don't believe that Jesus can forgive the worst in us, we tend to act like Pharisees and try to clean ourselves up and look like good folks and hide the real us. And that's dangerous because the longer we hide our sins and begin to coddle our sins and protect our sins, we alienate ourselves not only from each other but from the grace of God. But what we find is that as we come to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance, speaking honestly to him about our sins, he meets us with incredible grace and gentleness and patience. You will not find him with his arms crossed saying to you, go home, get it right, and let me know when your life's in order. You'll find a heart that breaks over your sin. Now, attached to that is a warning, though. For the repentant, you always encounter Jesus in his grace. But if you refuse to repent and confess your sins to Christ, you will one day encounter him, but not in the gentleness of a lamb, but in the wrath of a lion. See, everyone in this room myself included, will one day stand before Jesus Christ and we will either do so as forgiven sinners, repentant, in relationship with the Lord Jesus, or we will do so covered in the filth of our sins. There will be no gentleness in the day of judgment for those who have hidden their sins and pretended that they could be righteous before him without Christ. But for those who trust in Christ, what you will find is patience that surpasses anything you could imagine. What sins do you need to bring to Jesus this morning? We're going to come to the Lord's table shortly. That is a great time for the check engine light to come on and you to say, okay, what's going on with my heart? What do I need to confess We need to bring out those secret sins, the things that we hope nobody else could know. We need to bring them before the Lord Jesus, confessing them and turning away from them and pleading for his help to put those sins to death. What better way can you show Jesus that you trust him than to confess your sins and repent this morning? That's the first thing is his patience. Second thing we see in this text is his permanence. Look at verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest had to be appointed by God. God was the one who would select the high priest. And there were certain requirements for the high priest. There were age requirements. There were genealogical requirements. He needed to be of the line of Levi. But here's the problem. By Jesus' day, God's instructions for appointing a high priest had been thrown away. And so you just look at history from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., King Herod, Herod the Great, selected the high priest. 
And then after him, his son Archelaus. And then after Archelaus, the governors did it. And then after the governors did it, Herod the Tetrarch appointed the high priest. It had become a political office. And so Israel ended up with all of these priests who were not, a call, who were not called by God. And there was a lot of turnover because as long as you were in the, the governing official's favor, you could be the high priest. But if you lost his favor or if there was somebody else that was more advantageous politically, then he could become the high priest. It was a very temporary office. You know, even in good times, it was a temporary office. You could only serve till you were 50 years old, meaning that once you hit that age, another high priest would take your place. It communicates this was temporary. And those of you who have had a pastor who retired or moved on or, or died know that's a very hard thing to deal with. And usually you hear one of two responses. One might be, whew, it's about time he's gone. Or, you know, the next one's just not the same. That's a reminder that all of that is temporary here on earth. And our faith cannot be tied, our hope cannot be anchored to any earthly thing or person because it's going to pass away. And that was so difficult to the Israelites, to the Jewish folks, because their faith was anchored to the high priest. That they trusted that he would really be able to take away their sins. So what happens when he's gone or what happens when we have a bad high priest? You know, what Hebrews is communicating is we need a permanent high priest. One who isn't going to die off from being a high priest, one who isn't going to change and maybe say, I'm tired of of offering sacrifices for you. Your sins are not atoned for. We need a a permanent high priest, and we see that here in a couple of ways, that, that there is a high priest who can bear the weight of our eternal hopes. Look at verse six. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm doing everything I can to resist getting caught in the weeds of who Melchizedek is. And and the reason I'm I'm trying not to get caught in the weeds is we're going to see Melchizedek again and again. And so if I teach on it too long today, you're probably going to forget about it by the time we get to it again, aren't you? And I'm probably going to have to to reteach it. And all I want to say today is Melchizedek from Genesis 14 was a unique kind of priest. He was a unique priest who predated the line of Aaron. And he was a priest, the Melchizedek line, as a priest forever. And this is saying, and this explains something. You might say, well, how could Jesus be a priest if he was from the line of Judah? He wasn't from the line of Levi. Because he's from a higher priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was temporary. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so were the genealogical records. So nobody knows today who the Levites would be. There couldn't be a high priest today in the Jewish world. But Jesus is from a higher line, a greater line, the line of Melchizedek. And he is a priest, not a temporary one, who would die from being a priest, but he's a permanent priest. And so it's a permanent priesthood. And then we see it again in verse 7. Look, look there at verse 7. As we're transported to Gethsemane and then to Golgotha. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, if you're tracking and you're thinking, you know, 
That's not how I remember the gospel portraying things. What I remember in the gospel was that Jesus sweated drops of blood and he cried out to his father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus, in a sense, wasn't answered. There was only silence. So how does this say that the father answered the prayer to save Jesus from death? How how can it say that? Well, it wasn't that the father uh, saved him from experiencing death. That That would have gone against the eternal covenant of redemption. But the father saved him out of death. Jesus went into, the, 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 into death's darkness. He went into death's domain, tasted it fully, and as he was raised from the dead, Jesus conquered death. That's how he can be our permanent high priest because death has no power over him. He conquered death in the grave. And so this letter should have been a huge encouragement to these Hebrew believers who are thinking back about the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and all that they left behind by following Jesus. And they're thinking, we don't have those things anymore because we don't need those things anymore. Those things were temporary, but our high priest, Jesus, is eternal because Jesus was able to take away sin. Those other things, they couldn't do it. It was just going through the motions to teach people that they needed a better and more permanent sacrifice. You know, of course, that longing for the visible didn't stop 2,000 years ago, did it? Uh, Visitors will sometimes come to the church and say, where's the altar? And I'll say to them, the altar is in heaven where Jesus sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat. Well, where are the priests? Our high priest is right there in heaven. And you know what he's doing right now? He is interceding for us. We don't have a visible high priest. We have one who is much better. And though you cannot see him, what he aimed to do, he accomplished. And he will forever be our permanent high priest. The permanent high priesthood of Christ is our hope of forgiveness. See, Jesus will never fail. Jesus will never retire. Jesus will never have to leave the ministry because of moral failure. Jesus is not only permanent, but his love for his people whom he redeemed is permanent. What that means then is because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, you won't wake up tomorrow and God says to you, I have changed my mind about you. You have out what I expected. I am done with you. No more are you mine. Jesus Christ, as our permanent high priest has taken away our sin and he is holding our place this sometimes the old hymn writers used to call him our surety before the throne my surety stands he's holding my place guaranteeing that where he is I too will one day be that's the permanence of the Lord Jesus as our great high priest now third this text shows us the perfection of our great high priest If we were to zoom out and look at verses 1 through 10 as a a whole section, we'd see verses 1 through 4 about the qualifications of the high priest. And then 5 through 10 are really about how Jesus exceeds every expectation. 
Whereas all those Old Testament high priests, even the best of them, they were impatient, they were temporary. Christ exceeded every qualification for a high priest. And the text uses sort of confusing language to explain that. Look at verses 8 through 10. You got to follow with me here because if you were to just read this at first glance, it looks like really strange language. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now that sounds weird for us to say Jesus learned obedience. Why? Because he's, he's God. He, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's eternal. So how does Jesus learn something? How does he learn obedience? We have to understand it's not saying that Jesus like once was disobedient and then became obedient. He once was imperfect and then became perfect. That's not at all what it's saying. It's saying here that Jesus stepped fully into the human experience of being born under the law and lived every day of his life experientially, incarnationally doing the work of the great high priest. He was perfect before, but he had to step into space and time and, as it says, learn obedience, to go through obedience to God's law and go through suffering. Why? So that he could be the source of our salvation. That's how he did it. If he had not become incarnate, we would have no salvation. And what this is saying here is Jesus is better than any high priest you can imagine. You know, do you realize that? There is nothing about Jesus Christ that could be any better than it is. There's nothing about him that could be any more wonderful. He's utterly perfect. And I want to drive that home because every person in this room has a high priest. We have somebody or something that we look to and we put our hope in. And if we didn't have that, then our world would fall apart. It may be your spouse. It may be a parent. It may be, and this is often what I see in my generation, looking to our child as our hope and our identity. And if I didn't have that, I'd have nothing. It may be your your stockbroker. Everything's okay as long as he's doing his job. It may be a talk show host that you live by whatever he says. It may be a pastor. Or it can be the Lord Jesus. All those temporary sinful high priests that we put our hope in, they will disappoint us. Those that we look to to bear the weight of our hopes cannot do it. Only Jesus can. The only one who understands the fullest extent of your sin and your weakness and loves you anyways, who understands perfect submission to the will of God and did so for you, who understands suffering and is right with you as you suffer, who understands how to liberate you from death because he himself conquered death, The only one who will never fail you and never cease to be your high priest is Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever looking to somebody or something in this world to sustain your soul or to justify you, to make you feel like you are a good person, and that high priest may be yourself, 
that you are looking to. I urge you to run to Jesus because you can either meet Jesus today in his gentleness through faith and repentance or you will meet him. You will meet the Lion of Judah in the judgment. But you will stand before him one way or another. Turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And if you're a believer today, I want to urge you with all that is in you to keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ. That's the message of Hebrews. Hebrews is going to say the same point about a thousand different ways. But the message is keep your eyes on Jesus. Well, why do I need to hear it again? Because you take your eyes off of Jesus so often. Other things distract us discourage us but when our faith is fixed on Christ when the eyes of our heart are fixed on Christ then those earthly things become strangely dim don't they everything else in this world is imperfect and passing away but Jesus alone is perfect and his perfection is the only thing that can satisfy the craving of your soul so beloved labor to fix your eyes upon him How do we apply this text? It's always my favorite part when I say that and I see three quarters of the room look down to start taking notes. What do I do with the high priesthood of Christ? A couple of applications. One, we need to realize that Jesus Christ as our great high priest is our worship leader. One of the duties of the high priest was to write the liturgy for temple worship. The people didn't determine how they worshiped and the priest didn't do it according to what was popular. He did it according to the will and word of God or at least he should have. The Lord Jesus establishes what our worship looks like and he's done so in scripture and he's a permanent high priest and so the way Jesus teaches us through scripture to worship him is actually a glimpse into eternal worship, the worship that we will do for all eternity. Earthly worship is just a foreshadowing of heavenly worship. That's why whenever you worship, you need to ask the question, is this how Jesus has instructed us to worship? Because there's all sorts of novelties that people can introduce into worship and all sorts of creative things. But beloved, if it is not instructed by Jesus, our great high priest, then it is not worship. And you know what's awesome to me about that? Is that even in the 2,000 years of the church's growth and development since the ascension of Christ, and all the changes that have come, people dress differently, they speak different languages, biblical worship doesn't change with fads. It's not shaped by trends because it is, it is dictated, it is governed by our eternal great high priest. And so whether we're with the church of the Hebrews 2,000 years ago or the Reformation 500 years ago or here today at First Scots, when we unite our voices in corporate worship according to Scripture, time falls away. And we offer worship that resounds through the halls of eternity. That's how important it is that we understand Jesus' role as our worship leader. Second, a very practical observation. You are a priesthood. We're not going to get into it as much today as we will in future uh, uh, sermons, but 
We don't have a great high priest but we ha- it, that's here physically in person. We have the Lord Jesus in heaven. But you are all priests. You are little priests. You, I'm a little priest. We're priests unto Jesus. And so we're to go about the duty day by day of ministry. We're to go about the duty of gospel ministry. And this text gives us the pattern for that, doesn't it? Do you know the hardest thing about ministry is patience? Ministering to people when their lives are falling apart or they keep returning to the same foolish things. This passage teaches us we need to be patient. This passage teaches us we need to be present. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth and deal with our sin. He came to be present among us. And if you want to do ministry as you're called to do, you need to be present with unbelievers. You need to be present with those whom you wish to disciple. And the goal of all of our ministry is not to point anybody to our perfection because none of us are able to go about that task, but to point all to the glory of the Lord Jesus and his perfection. This text gives us the blueprint for how you and I are to leave this place and do Christian ministry. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, we we don't just profess to believe it, but then turn away from it. Lord, we hunger and thirst after it, and we thank you that you feed our souls just as you you water the earth, Lord. You give us living water through your word. God, we pray that you would make us obedient and faithful to it, Lord, just as our great high priest is faithful to us. God, give us a a trust in him that exceeds, Lord, anything this world can bear because Jesus alone is worthy.